My name is Kim Weeks, and this is the Weeks Well. Several conversations I've recently had on this podcast have helped me think more deeply about the effects that yoga has on the mind, not just in terms of acting directly on it, but also in how so many of its practices, I mean, all of them, if done deeply and deliberately, prepare a field of experience. I first learned about Jillian Pransky's work from Dr. Gail Parker, who was on this podcast not too long ago, talking with me about restorative yoga for bodies like hers. What I learned as I prepped for my talk with Jillian, and as I further look ahead to my conversation with Tracy Stanley in the fall, is that these women are actually a cadre, each of whom has her own particular message, but all of whom are modernizing the practice of restorative yoga through societal, neurological, and psychobiological, in other words, koshic, understanding. I really want to underscore this because, as I'll tell you next, Jillian's work comes not just through yoga, but through the ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. Jillian talks about relaxation as being a prerequisite to rest. She assesses rightly, I think, that rest and relaxation are suddenly a big fad, as though we need to go consume both just like we do drive through food. But of course it's not that convenient. And more than that, it's a process. And it's one that, thanks to science, we can now name and describe in detail. If only it were convenient, but it isn't. We can't just jump into rest without preparing the body and all of it, all layers of it, and giving it the opportunity to uncoil and unfurl, and then to listen and allow and decide what to do next. There's so much more in this conversation, and I hope you're able to take the time to listen to all of it. Jillian was a certified Anusara teacher focusing on therapeutics for years, and I'll pause here and say that I'm not sure where to place Anusara in the overarching conversation on the week's well, given that its founder is still alive and continues to spend his time justifying his behavior within that tradition or school. If anyone wants to talk about that with me, hit me up and let's chat. But back to Jillian, the thing I'm basically obsessed about now, having gone really deep with her, is how Pema Chodron is her teacher. For decades, Jillian has been the yoga teacher at Chodron's Meditation Workshops at Omega, and she explains this much more in detail. But imagine if you were attending these retreats, read all of her works, devoured them in Jillian's word, words, and then came to this retreat, sat with all your fellow practitioners all day long, and then at the end of the day, became the teacher to talk about the physical experience of m- meditating all day like that. So what you'll get from Jillian in any of her classes and what I really hope you get from her book, Deep Listening, which she has recently published, is teachings that come through this experience. She talks about how offering verbal and physical experience minutes after children had just finished her day of holding space for meditation gave her the opportunity not just to absorb, but to re-language and even rewire her brain into the teacher and the guide and the leader that she is today. 
To be sure, what she teaches is difficult to put into words, but still, in my opinion, it matters a ton. I would recommend starting with her book, Deep Listening, which I just remain astonished over the fact that she was able to get this as a title, because isn't that what all yoga practice is? Aren't we deep listening to all aspects of ourselves? And I find Jillian's approach just so refreshing and so beautiful. And you'll hear in sort of a funny way, but I hope she picks this up. Jillian is the cheerleader for relaxation and an ambassador for listening. Here's Jillian Pransky. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for coming and joining me on The Week's Well. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. I'm really glad to make your acquaintance. Of course, I've heard your name and seen your work and read your book. And when I met with Gail Parker a few months ago, she mentioned your great work. And um, it does really seem like there's a group of you who are kind of coalescing around this restorative yoga work on certain platforms around. So I want to get to that, but I first just want to start almost at the beginning and ask what it was like to practice yoga at age nine and what it looked like to get you to, from there to here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so practicing yoga at age nine, that actually was my introduction to meditation uh, rather than than yoga, but I did also um, have an introduction early to yoga. My mother uh, took our family to TM to be initiated. Transcendental really, meditation. Wow, that's right. Really, as a threat to my dad, it was like an ultimate. You know, it was like either we go to marriage counseling or we go to meditation, and somehow or other, I don't know how he picked meditation. Um, and my whole family went and I received my mantra and was initiated and had my mantra practice as a very young person um, for many years. You know, for, for, for me in the family, I think it was the only, I was the only one that it really stuck with. But um, I then became actually an athlete. Like my, my way through the body was not through yoga, although I had the tools of meditation, but I was a competitive athlete all my life. Um, from actually from around nine, I began my first soccer team and I played collegiate soccer. I, um, made my way while I was also a professional in the world. I think when my senior year in high school, I started teaching aerobics in 1986 so I was like the Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda generation, um, barefoot in the cement basements with, you know, bandanas. Totally. Um, Same. I'm not that far yeah. behind you, but yeah, I didn't teach yeah. it, but I took it. Basement in the basement yeah. gym. Yeah, totally. Loved a good grapevine, went on to teach step aerobics, the whole thing, even as I had a career and was uh, really fired up to be a successful professional in the world. But working with my body as an athlete, driving myself to succeed because I had a lot of ambition by nature, a lot of energy and ambition by nature, having this sort of background as a meditation practice and always being intrigued in journaling and self-awareness, taking books off my mom's shelves, whether it was like passing passages or John Bradshaw, your inner child. 
I wound up stepping into yoga in, in um, high school through my, uh, what is it? My, my um, uh, uh, health club, you know, where I taught aerobics. I'm, and actually, you know, younger than that, my mom took me to the European health spa where we did some yoga. It's funny. I'm um, reading this, this book right now, Fit Nation. Have you heard of it? I should no. put it in the show notes, but I'm actually in the section right now about the innovations that were occurring in the health spas and the gyms in the late 20th century. Among them, this concept of a European health spa, did you say? Oh, yeah. It was called the European yeah, health spa. Yeah, that's so it was like the Jack LaLanne Yes, time. exactly. So, I'm reading about Jack yeah. LaLanne at this moment yeah. in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So for context for our listeners, I'm, I'm 55 years old. So I was, this is in the seventies that we're talking about. And, um, you know, this was the European health spa also included the saunas and the whirlpools and the hot tubs where I went in as a child and like got schooled really early in being around a community of women taking care of themselves. Oh my God, that's so awesome. It was, it was pretty amazing, but when I finally came to yoga on my own, I had enough introduction that I knew to go to a yoga class when I needed it as, we'll call it a triage moment mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. But stepping into that real yoga experience in a real studio with my first teacher, who was Alan Finger, um, and falling apart in my first shavasana, in my first class, when I needed it most, it was, it was like coming home in a way that um, probably nothing else in my life, in any aspect of my life, ever felt like. Yeah, I totally understand. I had the same exact experience in Shavasana. And I think one of the geniuses of modern yoga is Shavasana. Because what other circumstance do we find ourselves in at the end of some kind of physical fitness movement? That's what yoga asana is. Although I'm sure we'll get to the restorative aspect of your teaching, which is not exactly fitness. It's sort of mental and emotional fitness, but not exactly the physical. And being able to rest. Just rest, not just by yourself, but among others doing the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this rest conversation, I guess I'm assuming we're going to jump around a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. it's a really interesting time. So so I just want to put a framework on that. I have been studying, teaching, practicing, sharing restorative yoga since the mid-90s. So this is not a new practice for me. This is this is my lineage. This is my spiritual practice. This is my healing practice. This is my only way I get through life practice. But um, I bring that up because the conversation around rest right now has never been louder, especially on social media. And, um, you know, relaxation is a prerequisite to rest. So everybody's speaking really loudly about rest, but you can't just stop doing a lot of activity and have that be something restful. And a lot of social media conversation and news conversation and wellness conversation, it's easy for us to think of rest as another trend or even another burden uh, or either another, you know, people are like, oh, great, 
now on top of everything else, I also yeah. need to rest. Yeah, another stressor, another checkbox yeah. that I'm not yeah. going to get done today. Yeah, yeah, and um, and rest. Sure, it has a utilitarian aspect, but we can't really approach it in a utilitarian way. We set conditions for rest to happen. We set conditions through learning the skill of relaxation, which is something we need to practice and learn. It's not something we're taught. It's not baked into our families or our culture. Um, So for me, this conversation around rest really begins with, well, learning how we hold tension that prevents us from relaxation. And then therefore learning the study of conscious relaxation so we can set conditions for deep rest. That's amazing. I mean, that's such a clear description of the efficacy of yoga nidra and the efficacy of the relaxation and meditation piece of yoga, which is, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in the scientific research on yoga. And of course, yoga nidra is sort of rising up. And it's interesting to see science catch up with the very clear description that you just made, because that description, I imagine, I can't imagine it doesn't, come straight from your lived experience, right? Yes, yes. And so I want to make a note then there on, yes, Yoga Nidra, yes, all the research, yes, it's one of my favorite practices in the categories of rest and renew. But I find the way I practice restorative yoga is different than yoga nidra in that I am specifically practicing paying attention to tension and actually creating space for it, befriending it, listening um, so that I can understand how I hold and how I grip so that I can create a relationship to either include my tension or create conditions for tension to soften when it's when it's a wise time to do so, how I can ungrip or unfurl, which is different than yoga nidra in the sense of yoga nidra gives us time to sort of almost get out of our mind and body by, by moving, um, Methodically, not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and not and not resting and settling into particular areas. Whereas restorative yoga can give us the opportunity. It doesn't have to be used this way, but something that I find helps me in my path of deep listening, which is ultimately learning how to self-regulate, which is ultimately learning how to respond rather than react, which is ultimately learning how to choose my behavior consciously, mindfully, compassionately, rather than get caught up in my habitual stress response, which we're all wired to do. And I found that I had no, I, I, I still have no shortage of, you know, that's why I practice regularly. So restorative yoga in this sense, um, we're making you know, we're, we're developing a relationship with the way we close down, harden, armor, 
and studying how we can stay present and open when we don't actually need to harden and hold it, hold. Right. Which with the yoga practice writ large, assuming that there are two consenting parties in the experience where the power dynamic isn't being abused, yoga writ large is that, is that opportunity to safely unfurl, unwind, and recognize that there's no need in that circumstance specifically to hold up any armor, right? Yes, 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 I agree. I mean, I think it we're all we're all pointing to the same places through the techniques and and you know, this conversation of um student teacher, abuse of power, um yoga lineage, like I've had this interesting path of sort of skirting any particular, I don't want to use the word like sangha or kula or or uh I've I've learned from so many masters. Um I have a handful of masters who have really left a huge imprint on on me and are deeply embedded in my work. But um but the practice itself has always been the greatest teacher, you know, any of my great teachers have guided me into the experience of being with, being with. with. Yeah, Mm -hmm. with it, exactly. I was going to say with all of it, with exactly. Well, and that's, you know, before we, um, before we actually saw each other, as I was preparing for this conversation, it struck me that, um, I mean, I don't know, the working title we have for your podcast right now, actually, at at Weeks Well, is walking the interlineage line. It really mm. seems like that's reading your bio, what you've done, because it isn't even that you've, I love how you said it, the teachers that have, uh, you said left you with something, I didn't hear that word, but embedded in your teaching. It's just a beautiful image that what they've left you with, you know, just keeps coming up and out from your most restful places as a teacher. And you know, your most important um, gifts as a teacher. And so it isn't even that, you know, I'm just looking down, you studied with John Kabat-Zinn and Sharon Salzberg and um, Eric Schiffman, who is a, when I saw that, I just, my heart just kind of went, yay. (laughs) The emoji, you know, sort of. What else could you do? (laughs) Yeah, because I I was like, wait, I was, I know, I was like, did I see her at the, was she at that training in Santa Barbara? Yes, I was. I was at that training in Santa Barbara. Well, in 1998. Yeah, I was there about four years later or maybe Mm. five. Yeah, it was such a great, yeah, but, but, and also Alan Finger, of course, I don't mean to, to buy, to pass him up because you mentioned him first, but you also had this trans dental meditation thing. So yeah, you yeah. really, and it's my, like you're... And honestly, you know, I, I am a yoga teacher, meaning I use the modality of yoga practices, the, um, the asana, the eight limb path, but primarily my teacher is Pema Children. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, let's go I, there. Let's talk about her and how that sort of, did that yeah. intersect with your... Um, experience when you realized that there was a point at where you were talking about your success in the corporate world as when you've already said it in this talk as well, kind of right there aligned 
with a really sweaty athletic approach. Do I understand that you had this like sweaty athletic approach to yoga also then or well, only only when I just began because I started as an athlete. You know, I had I I came into my yoga class literally um I think like 2 months after I ran a marathon. I ran the I ran the 1992 New York City Marathon as a non-runner because five months before that or four months before that, I ran a 5K. That was so much fun. <laughs> you're like, why not Why not just <laughs> add 20 miles? <laughs> well, you're like, why not just start a band? You know, know exactly. it, it, it was the same thing. Totally. Was like, I, I, was, I had a really good time. <laughs> yeah. So why not do it bigger? Completely. I totally understand. Um, I love it. And someone said to me, like, you should run the marathon. And, and I happened to like get a ticket by the, my corporate boss at the time that our company, you know, was gifted a few certificates. And I was like, yes, I want to do it. And um, I did do it as a non-runner because I was really good at whatever you put your mind to, you can do. And that was my lifelong motto, you know, mind over matter which I still think has a place in our understanding of energy. But when abused, when not coupled with listening, when not coupled with compassion, when not coupled with self-awareness and reflectivity and self-inquiry, then it can become abusive, even when it's for what's seemingly a good goal. Right. So my mind over matter um, was enthusiasm and the ability to just get things done. So I had uh, progressed very quickly through my corporate. At, at 30, I was already a major marketing director at a publishing firm, actually like from 26 or something, 27. And I did come as an athlete to yoga because I just came off the marathon until date. I was a step teacher and a personal trainer after work. So I worked corporate corporate, and then five days a week and Saturdays I taught taught fitness right after work. That first yoga class humbled me. With Alan? Yeah, yeah. And I went back every single day as a enthusiastic, dedicated worker will for three years, seven days a week to the city from Hoboken. And yes, and, and so I grew up in what would what is called the Ishta yoga lineage. Um, I then also very, I think that was like 95, 94. And I was eventually initiated as a teacher by Monty Finger and Alan Finger, Monty, his dad. Um, and it is a beautiful beautiful, integrated, well-rounded, one of what I think as one of the most well-rounded yoga practices when offered in a, um, a single class space, right? They still included, they never dropped out any of the aspects of yoga. Um, I did go on to, which I don't always, uh, you don't always read about, but I did go on to be a certified uh, Anasara teacher. So that's in my background as well. And I specialized in therapeutics um, all the way up until, you know, I don't really speak all that much about that, except I learned a tremendous amount of body mechanics and brilliant therapeutics that inform my way of structurally understanding the body so that it can bring enough comfort 
to bring more ease to quiet the mind and body. And still in my restorative yoga practice, that doesn't look like an alignment practice. I draw deeply on the principles of Anasara um, alignment and therapeutic principles of bones and muscles and 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 the uplifting heart aspect of the practice that points us towards appreciation and gratitude and raising energy and um, you know also a beautiful package in that way. Well, I'd like to say actually that I first of all appreciate. Um, you know, the Ishta lineage is has been on my radar and something that I want to bring in. So I was, I'm glad that you're introducing it to the podcast, to the listeners, because we haven't talked about it so far yet. So I'd love to know anybody else you might recommend I go talk to sure, offline. Yeah. But yeah. the other thing I want to say that I really appreciate is that we're using the word Anusara and we're not talking about any body in particular, though Anusara was an innovation and invention that came um, out of the Iyengar lineage and was its own thing with its own um, flawed leader. But I find, you know, the Iyengar yoga lineage um, among the best and certainly among the most rigorous for understanding all these things you've just described in some respects, many Iyengar teachers would say, as I'm sure you relate, they would call sort of the Iyengar yoga practice therapeutic from the beginning, even though we have these labels out there, a certified International Association of Yoga Therapists, therapist, I'm actually going to their conference um, as soon as we hang up the phone, I'm on my way to DC um, for, their, for their yearly conference. But so there's a bit of a fraught conversation around what is the lineage of yoga therapy, but I just want to sort of highlight all those things because we also haven't delved into Anusara that much either for, um, you know, some reasons that I'm still myself grappling with. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And honestly, you know, um, the only real, so so these systems, both of these systems, you know, uh, Ishti Yoga, integrated systems of Hatha, Tantra, and Ayurveda, it greatly inform how I practice and, and take care of myself. I am uh, not necessarily part of the community or the Sangha. Same with Anasara. I was always outside of the circle, so to speak, but I drew incredible information and inspiration from both of these um, teachers who were informed by many great masters as well as um, Eric Schiffman. So I'd say my three uh, real bodily practices, um, and Eric Schiffman is my, is, my, is my deepest influence, my heart, my heart practice. And, um, you know, I also took from, from Gary Krasa trainings with Gary and even Desika Char, when he came in for five days, I did a training with him at Omega. So I'm deeply steeped in a variety of lineages that way. Pema Chodron, I also began practicing with in 1998. So here's the thing about how this became so informed in my practice. I had been teaching for Omega for their body and soul conferences in New York City with all the masters. That's where I first started studying with John Kabat-Zinn or uh, Deepak Chopra. I, I would be the yoga teacher for the conference and then I'd get to go to all the workshops. That is so cool. Just, oh my God. 
Yeah. So that, so that was my, you know, playground, so to speak. And anybody I ever could have dreamed of wanting to learn from was the keynotes and the features and the catalog faculty for these uh, workshops that in which I taught at maybe four or five of them, um, the ones at the hotels, the big things. And so I was invited to teach on campus for Pema Children's first weekend there. And that was her book, When Things Fall Apart. That was at Omega, right? Yeah. 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 So never heard of her before. Read the book so that I could best serve her students as the yoga teacher for the weekend. Well, that was 1998. And I was invited back every single time she taught to teach the yoga for her weekend from that point forward. So being a student in the workshop, myself, receiving the teachings, practicing the teachings, reading the book, reading everything she's ever written, listening to every recording she's ever spoke on, devouring her offerings. And in real time, translating them in the yoga classroom during retreat. 30 retreats. You know, since 1998, sometimes twice a year until this year was her last one, was where I received the teachings and then put it into a somatic bodily practice on the mat. So what I was looking for was how do I create the experience to not only have a physical understanding of what she was sharing intellectually, but how do we do that practice in and through the body, not just sitting in meditation with the head? Like, so that's how my, that, that's, that's really what my work is. And today I I would still say if I do anything, um, I'm passing along the teachings of Pema Chodron through my teachings on the mat in the space of yoga through the body as a somatic experience. That's amazing. I'm sort of um, a bit gobsmacked by the description because the idea that you received, you know, her teachings in this direct, and I'll just say it because Guru Shishya capacity, which I know is not her um, lineage language per se, but still from this like direct experience, which is one of the things I love about reading the sutras is sort of the idea of like direct knowledge, which by definition you're getting from inside yourself. So she, this teacher is awakening these things inside of you that are already true. And then you have all of this lived experience of balancing, you know, this overachiever, go, 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 like enthusiasm, passionate, intelligent, like all these things that sort of make you work in the world and confer on you this success, right? And at that time, things are changing, thank goodness, but I think a lot of people going to these workshops were from, well, they would have to be coming from a place like that to have the privilege to go to the workshop in the first place, right? Yes, that, that is that is true. I mean, it, so I'm just you know, I'm just saying that these th- things yeah. are changing so much, but still, I'm just thinking about the the trans 
inference, if that's really the word, but I don't yeah, think that, you yeah. know, I mean, from there was her to min- you to them. There's minutes, minutes between, because the way a retreat at Omega works is like, you know, there's morning yoga from 7.30 to 8.30. Workshop starts at, you know, 9 to 12, then workshop from 2 to 5, and then yoga from 5.15 to 6.15. So I was literally going from being awoke, like I wasn't, it wasn't even cognitive when you receive, when you're in a learning environment like that, it sort of goes past the cognitive experience and you're, uh, you're just, uh. and so I went right from like things being reorganized and experienced in my body to offering a verbally and physically a yoga experience with minutes between the two, my greatest learning was not only being in her presence and receiving, but the absorption and having to reinterpret was where it became, where it sank into me. Like the the opportunity to relanguage. Yeah, exactly. It, it like wired my brain in that deeper understanding. So I um couldn't be more grateful and it is it is also something that you know doesn't fail to always surprise me I listen to a podcast I'm on or read an article or I watch my zooms you know I'm like did I say that like wait do I know that and what happens is the minute I start channeling the minute I take the seat of a sharer a sharer I can't pronounce that well but you know the minute I have the opportunity to share teachings it's as if I'm gone and they come through and then like I get invited to talk to you and I'm like, what am I going to say? What do I know? I don't even know what I'm saying. And then it's in the invitation of sharing, the channel is reopened. And so my favorite thing in the world to do ever is teach because I get to be saturated myself in the teachings as I get to share. Right. And the amazing thing about that, I mean... Ugh. I've had such a feminist relationship with the sutras for all these years. Uh, so many questions. I'm like, does my mind really think that work that way? Like, do I really, like, you know, I accept all of these truths, these threads as truthful and sort of learning from Doug Keller, who formerly Anusara, who's been on the podcast twice now with a really academic approach to how the sutras kind of grounded a bunch of different theories at the time, but are not inclusive of the total like stream or channel of teachings about yoga because it omits tantric thinking. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika wound up being a different document you know, with a different agenda and set of ideas than the Yoga Sutras. And it's really just a slate, or is it slight? I don't know. I can't pronounce that one either. Of hand, you know, that brings us to modernity with the Yoga Sutras just because Vivekananda showed up and was like, eh, I'll talk for half a thing about the Sutras and the other half about what I think. And so it just got linked. You know, the Sutras just got linked, you know, into. And so in any event... One of the issues I have with that and with the conversation of sort of the ego space is that my first teacher, also formerly Anusara, J.J. Gormley, oh, yeah. who introduced me to Eric, yeah. who, you know, <laughs> amplify like hashtag yes to everything you said about him, 
she talked about how the chakras and the ego space specifically in women has this negative charge and female identifying, let's just say. So ego is just more fraught for the female body because it's one, three, five, seven, it's a little bit, little bit weaker. And so I say all of that to say that for, I think one of the biggest challenges in modern yoga teaching for women in particular is to recognize that it's okay to let your ego out of the way. You won't get subsumed. You are held and contained, you know, by all these other voices before you, and you can assert yourself in that space in the yoga class in a way that's totally nurturing for you and not draining. Mm, I love that you say that, and that's nurturing you and not draining. Yeah. Because uh, yes. you just it just seems like I just have to say, Jillian, it you just I'm so glad you're doing this. And you decided to take all of that power and you didn't say the word, but humility, mm. you know, or humbleness or whatever it is to let all that in and go through you to your students because to me, that is lineage. I mean, that's the thing I'm scratching at is how you've absorbed what you've learned and how you're giving it to your students. Well, my pup is going to be a little anxious at the um, thunder that we're having here. Oh, so he, he's going to scratch my leg in a second. But um, I will say to a couple of things that you just mentioned, one is... Um, you know, ego falling away, what what happens when I teach? And maybe it's also the gift of like, how did I wind up with Pema Chojin as, as my main teacher? How, how, how did that gift wind up in my lap? When I start teaching and Eric and, and you know what, to each stage, to Alan, to John, to all of these great masters that we are all fallible. You know, even there, there has been some conversation on every single teacher that has left a big impact on me. And I'm sure, you know, all of, all of us as humans are, you know, dig deep enough and we're going to disappoint a lot of people. But when I start sharing, something happens where I can't not share everything I've learned or know, or, you know, if I think about it beforehand, I might be like, well, maybe I shouldn't say that because that's something really special to my teaching. And if I share that, someone's going to take that and they're going to do their thing with it. And the minute I contract around something is when I, I, I stop teaching. And as soon as I start teaching, whatever I thought was precious to me or precious to my success or precious to my individuality or precious to make my pat my my teaching important when i'm really teaching i can't guard what it is i want to share or what i know or what's been passed on to me and that channel feels so good and it is also so much more about friendship than about teaching it's like being with our best friends and being like, oh my God, let me tell you what I heard. Let me tell you what I know. Totally. Let me tell you how I heard. Like co-creating, you know? Like, yes. And it becomes collaborative. Mm -hmm. it, exactly. Co-creating. And that for me is also where I am re-nourished by the practice. And I always say to anybody who 
I'm sharing conversation with who is becoming a teacher or who is a teacher. If your practice leaves you feeling drained, if your teaching leaves you feeling drained, it's not the right practice. It's not the right teaching. If you're not in refreshed, re-energized, reconnected, re-nourished by sharing these practices, even when it means being with what is difficult, if you're not nourished in some way or energized in some way, you know, look, look closely at the what and the how. You, you said something else I just also wanted to share, you know, in that conversation of guru is, um, I don't know where you said it or how you said it, but it was in short words, um, awakening what we know in each other. And I think that that is also the biggest gift of A, the modality I teach, like it's a really good modality for that. It's a really good modality for letting my most compassionate presence lead, but it is most uh, effective and intimate when it is about awakening. Can you hear that? Is that thunder? thunder here? Yeah. Yeah. But what I really wanted to just emphasize was that sharing yoga is about awakening each other to what we already know, you know, what is already true and is what is already wise, what is already like yoga is oneness, what is already inherently there, but what we create barriers to, you know? Yeah. And did you, so is that a good place to go then into, um, as long as you know the, the electricity doesn't get shut off, <laughs> I think we should publish yeah. it as is if it does cut off. However, it gets cut off is the way it's meant to be. But um, is that what happened to you? The like barrier, I guess, between this part of you, this gift giver in you, this service provider, this caregiver. It sounds like you're all you identify, or I would project that. You are those things. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. Well, that's what that's what the practice right. does. You yeah. know, like, um, yeah, I probably definitely was predisposed to, you know, listen, I was a cheerleader as a kid. I was the captain of the soccer team, not because I had to be in charge, but because I wanted to inspire my teammates. So by nature, I I I I naturally I feel inspired. I like other people to have that energy. You're like as well. a restorative so yoga a, cheerleader. <laughs> I mean, a cheerleader yeah. for restorative yoga. I think totally. <laughs> I, I will take that on. Please do. Um, <laughs> I will cheer I for will you. Come in uniform next time. Yeah. I will come in uniform <laughs> next time. Not so much, but um, but the practice, yeah, uh, does foster. It does foster compassion. It does foster patience. It does foster deep listening. So I naturally developed that aspect that was already me, but I, um, I can't not lead with that. So it's not that I think of myself as a caretaker, but the caring leads the teaching. Um, and, um, I think that's what happened when I went, when I started sort of studying more with um, Sharon Salzberg in, in New York early on, even Sylvia Bornstein was in the early days. And um, of course, Tara Brock and, and, and completely 
become a children was that's when I was a little confused of like, where was classical yoga and Buddhism meeting each other? And where was masculine and feminine voice meeting each other? And one practice early on when I was told like, you are not your thoughts, you are not your body, you are not, um, you know, we rise above, we can mind over matter our emotions. A lot of those things I wanted to do early on, they felt like good goals. I could master them in the sense that like, oh, I, you use your mind to do that. I can do that. But it also was never comfortable. It was it was a it was a a, a practice of brawn. <laughs> it was a practice of determination and will and it, it brought up my out of balance masculinity. Yeah. yeah. And um, and my journey was a lot about not that my masculine energy is bad, but growing up in a house full of boys, being awarded for masculine activities, uh, showing up in the world as a successful person in a way that the masculine is measured really um, had me leading from that place. And while those practices almost felt like, oh, I could do that they were uncomfortable. And I had a big conflict. And especially once I sort of went into my first real practices of metta or, and yeah, well, practices of metta, like that broke me. But I started asking, you know, like the practice no longer, the classical yoga practices, I don't consider myself a classical yoga teacher. Um, And I don't, I don't use Sanskrit in my practices. I don't share classical yoga teachings in the sense that they were not the energy that helped me soften and open to who I am. And that I had to question my whether it was my approach to them or how they were shared with me or the way my approach and how they were shared met. Totally. Or all just of the above, yeah, or whatever. All of the above. But they actually stimulated in me something that kept me fortifying my my small self, myself, instead of becoming more porous and expansive and spacious and part of the self. And it was only in the softening practices and the compassion practices and the open practices and the practices shared with me by these amazing women that... I awoken to that part of myself. I completely understand. And I'm curious, What? let's talk about metta for a second. What about that broke you? Because I still want to keep getting to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like get to the deep, to the book, deep listening, because it, I mean, everything we're talking about today just seems like the, the perfect, um, well, I mean, the perfect, you know, description or conversation about your book because it really is an invitation to read it because what you're saying to us now I think is this like information that's just underneath the kind of all those things and also stuff so I would invite people to read the book because it's a it's a it's just it's a down regulating read which not which mm-hmm. so few reads are really and as a book you know when Lots of us kind of redoubled our efforts on reading during COVID. It's just, a, it's a, I feel like COVID, it gave so many, I mean, it was so ferocious and so many gifts, but it took so much away. I mean, it was just, a, you know, nothing's free. And it was a, 
it was quite quite the reckoning for society, I think, if you're listening. You know, if you're if you're listening, yeah. like your book yeah. asks us yeah. or suggests that we do. And so now we can yes. read things that for me, I always have to be reading a history book right now because I want some answers. I just want some context for yeah. some stuff. But then I have to have like a book like yours to just remind me to be in touch. Yeah, well, you know, you know COVID elevated, elevated my deep listening. Um the book, the book is a technology for offering practices to self-regulate or down-regulate in a way that listening can become possible. And it was the approach to ourselves, whereas, and even though I did was aware of how that impacts the collective and how it helps us not add aggression to the planet, you know, not add aggression to ourselves and not add aggression to the planet. But it wasn't until the experience of COVID and making new friendships like my friend, Dr. Gail Parker. And um, so you met her in the pandemic. You didn't know each other before. uh, We met um, right at the beginning, maybe. Um, You know, we had known of each each other and each other's work, but we actually, you know, really started connecting. And, you know, I, she's one of my dear friends, but through conversations um, with many people that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to have conversations with and through the polarity that was revealed through COVID and amplified continually still, if I, if we weren't living through that polarity and these very uncomfortable, alarming times, I wouldn't have, have felt the urgency of sharing my practice in the way that it provides the ability for us to listen to each other at large in a much larger space and environment where um where we we have to begin to to make that that leap. So I I have a really big question about that or it feels big to me. Sean Korn talked about the schisms that are happening in modern yoga right now between people who practice under the same umbrella word. And I, I just don't, I don't know <laughs> if we are speaking out of turn when we try to make yoga political, which is different from politicizing yoga. But I guess I'm wondering, do you think you have a role in uniting people across this polarity, or do you think? Um, no, no, no. I, I don't think. I don't think I have a role as a uniter. Um, not as far. I feel like I'm an ambassador for listening. The cheerleader. The cheerleader. Um, oh, for, yeah, yeah. That's true. Because ambassador for listening and cheerleader for restorative yoga. You should keep going with these labels. Yeah. Well, but they're but yeah. they're both yeah. because listening lis- listening is a resting practice relaxation is a prerequisite for listening. 
relaxation is a prerequisite for rest. Relaxation is a prerequisite for healing. Relaxation is a prerequisite for listening. And listening, real listening, is the ability to stay open in the moment. That's what listening is. Listening is the ability to stay open in the moment. And the moment always, always, if it's an actual moment, it will always contain paradox and ambiguity and contradiction and polarity because that's reality. And so listening is the practice of being with this and that, not this or that. And it's not actually fixing things or changing things. It's creating conditions for things to change. So, however, they change, however, because we can't know. Well, because the ingredients of compassion and friendship, befriending and compassion inherently is the activator of change, right? And we can't create that peace. Do you say compassion uh, is the activator of change? Is that what you just said? Well, yeah, because so, so, so there's a lot of science on listening, right? There's a lot of science on learning. So we know. From, from neuroscience, we know that learning can only happen when we're not in the stress response, right? The, 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 the whole prefrontal cortex can only turn on and the parts of our brain that look at big picture thinking and the parts of our brain that um, withhold judgment but put forth curiosity, the parts of our brain that look for be, befriending or mirror neurons that create connections, the parts of our brain are right frontal cortex. If you've read, you know, great read is Jill Bolte-Taylor's work. So that's really super interesting. But all the things that need to be turned on for learning to happen, happen through turning on the relaxation response. So again, prerequisite for learning is relaxation. We listen as a way of learning, we lean in to listen. listen. Listening is a curiosity practice. Listening is an open practice. If we listen from the perspective of proving our point of what we know, of what we want to say next, of being heard, of we're not, that's not listening, right? So listening is actually another one of our heart practices. It's a meta practice. It's, an, it's a practice of equanimity. And then if we're calling it an equanimity practice or an opening practice or heart practice, we also have to then look at, well, we can't listen if we're not relaxed because we have to listen defensively. If we're in the stress response, we have to listen defensively. Survival will make it so. And so if we're listening defensively, we're speaking offensively or defensively. That's not conditions for change. That's conditions for more aggression. And yeah, sharpening of the poles, yeah. like gravity now, moving to the barbells versus in the middle. For context, my teacher's Pema Chodron, and she's taken a vow to not add aggression to the planet in her lifetime, to herself or others. That is a big conversation to unpack when you're talking about human rights. And when you're talking about making sure there's social justice and just humanity how do you do that without adding aggression? I, I'm not saying I have the answer in any way, shape, or form, but I'm informed by a master whose teachings are, how do we practice being in relationship and being intimate and collaborating in a way that promotes peace 
and not aggression. And therefore, how we listen to ourselves, how we listen to the tension in our own bodies, how we listen to the self-talk, not how we change the self-talk, how we listen to the self-talk, how we listen to the achy, dense tension in our body, how we listen, the, the attitude in which we meet ourselves will either leave us feeling more cared for and open, relaxed, or more tight and hard, defensive. How we attend to and care for ourselves, this brings us back to metta, and so I'm going to back up and say why my metta practice humbled me is when you do a traditional metta practice, you're wishing metta phrases, blessings, affirmations, wishes of wellness. May you be safe and well. May you be happy and live with ease. May you feel loved and loving. Well, you wish that for a benefactor, someone who's been loving to you. That's eh, kind of easy. You wish it for a neutral person and you start to realize like, wow, I'm walking around looking through people as if they have nothing to do with me. You wish it for somebody you're challenged by. This is how I changed my relationship with my father that I never felt validated or loved by, who by the time he died on Valentine's Day, oh my God, you gotta be kidding right? me. in 2011, what? I wound up having a beautiful relationship with because of my practice. But the part that humbled me, that surprised me the most is you wish Metta for yourself. And when I did that the first time, probably for the first three years, the rage, the anxiety, the disappointment, the sadness, the absolute numbness, the resistance. I mean, when, when the first time she said it, I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> You were like, I'm not doing that. No, like I, I couldn't. Serious? I couldn't even use the words. No, oh, that's hilarious. It's like, I couldn't I do it. It's it's yeah. I locked up. I totally it's I locked up, and I started practicing for the first three years, having my dearest friend Nicole wish me the phrases to learn how it felt to receive them and be worthy of them. So you used your friend to help you with the you part of method, right? In in the imagination, because it all takes place that's in beautiful. your mind. I know, but did you tell her that you were doing it? No, but eventually, I mean, she oh, knows because did, I, I think yeah. I might even mention it in my TED talk. I do a TED talk on yeah. Meta yeah, and I mention yeah. that. But so, so, so bringing this fast forward, learning how we listen, how do we hold space for ourselves? How do we meet ourselves? Ultimately, the practice of relaxation, learning how to meet our tension, learning how to meet the inner bully, learning how to meet all the parts of ourselves that we are disappointed by, ashamed of. As we learn to relax in our body in restorative yoga, whether it's just the achy shoulder or the numb belly or the tense jaw, as we learn how to be with the tension we find, breathe, create support by the props, the ground, we learn how to relax with what is, it starts to change. It start, the, the tension starts to unfurl, not by uh, not by pulling it apart, not by straining it, but by creating a spaciousness around it, creating support and spaciousness, warmth. As relaxation happens, we open up so much circuitry in our brain, in our chemistry. Not only does the prefrontal cortex get turned on, but we get hits of serotonin and oxytocin, the parts, the, the, the transmitters, the hormones that help us bond that help us see each other as friends potentially rather than enemies, which when we're getting the other hormones, we're, 
we're getting a dose of a good information that like our neighbor is our enemy. So the relax, uh, so the relaxation begins to change the environment neurologically, physiologically, biologically for listening, for learning to change our behavior. I'll say one more thing is like when we're in fight, flight, or freeze, we're limited to the behaviors of aggression, withdrawal, or avoidance, fight, aggression, flee, withdrawal, freeze, avoidance. If we're in the stress response, we're behaving that way in the world. We, we have no other option. So relaxation becomes, so the process of meeting our tension, how we meet ourselves, listening inward, learning to listen openly, caringly, relaxing at the same time, they sort of happen in tandem. Set the conditions for not only rest, which is recuperative and healing, biologically and neurologically and all those other ways on all of our systems, but our wellness you know, it's enough to practice it for wellness and it's a whole nother layer to practice it for listening. And listening to ourselves ultimately helps us, as I said, change the way we listen to others, which becomes how we behave in a collective. It leaves me with um, a s questions about your method like, what does a class with you look like? Like, how do you walk somebody through a micro experience of what you've just described? Yeah. So um, one thing, it's not a huge left brain kind of class. Like, it's not a lot about, well, so how do I do it? So I, I do have a methodology, something that governs everything I do, which is basically my way of understanding the koshas. And the way I understand them, I've sort of attached somatic experiences to them. Um, so I call it lar-lar, land, which is getting grounded, finding support, literally letting your body actually rest on the ground, arriving, Lar, L-A-R, arriving on the breath, letting the breath, allowing the breath to flow, arriving on the breath. The breath is only happening in the present moment. So when we arrive on it, it delivers us into the here and now, as well as all those other things the breath does for our nervous system to downregulate and further land and further arrive. And then relax on purpose. And by relax on purpose, I mean, that's the gentle body scanning we do, whether it's an active movement practice or in a more still looking restful pose and relax on purpose. We usually hit all of the habitual places that everybody thinks I'm personally guiding them, but these are for all of us, jaw, the shoulders, the fists, the belly. Um, and then it goes into that sets the foundation Landing, arriving, relaxing is the foundation needed to listen, to begin to pay attention, to notice what's happening in my body. Sensation, thought, feeling, stories, numbness, boredom. To allowing, which is the compassion practice. Allowing what we find to just be what we find. Not change it, not fix it, to be with it to befriend, to allow. 
And then the last R could be either relax again, relax all over again, or repeat all over again, which is what it usually is. This is like basically landing, arriving, and relaxing, listening, and allowing over and over again as a lifetime practice. But then also respond. We've set the conditions to respond to the moment, whatever that may mean, whether it actually means to show up in the world with a particular um, truth to speak, whether it's a physical action, whether it's the way we care for ourselves, whether it's the way we're responding to somebody who's hurt us when we feel, you know, the inclination to bark back. So land, arrive, relax, listen, allow, respond. Um, how it looks in a classroom is I usually always warm up first. Um, here's the other thing about rest. People carry a lot of energy and tension in their body. I learned for many, for a couple of decades, not to ask people just to lay down. Most people, more than most, harbor undigested anxiety, undigested small and large trauma, pain, chronic pain. Um, and, and they're also working on the model that like, if I lay down, something's not going to be okay. If I rest, that means I'm not going to get something done. If I don't get something done, that means life's not going to be happening for me and I'm not think things will fall apart. We're falling apart thinking that things have to keep going or will fall apart. Totally. Because it takes yeah, more effort to, to hold it back. You know, it takes more effort to... Yeah. So it's it a in. titration. So mm -hmm. class is always a titration and it always begins with grounding practices, whether it's um, things that look like you know, cat cow and, and standing gentle flows and seated openers. And we move through whether it be five to 20 minutes of uh, breath-based movement practices, as little left brain as possible and bringing it into uh, longer restoratives. Once we've synced up with our breath, feel a little more grounded, come home to our bodies arrive more in the present moment, I then introduce longer shavasanas and or supported restorative resting poses. But that, that's where I am now. I, you know, everything is always evolving and it depends on who I'm working with and what's on the news and what the weather is and what time of day it is. I am really looking forward to learning more about where you take this uh, movement. I mean, this this sort of thing of deep listening. I mean, it's a it's an amazing title. It's such an important um, concept. Like writ large, as we discussed, like minutes and you know whatever long a while a long time ago, it seems like. But in a, but in a, the most amazing way. I mean, how you'll how you'll keep going with it. So I definitely hope that most listeners of this podcast are teachers. So I hope they decide, we'll have it all in the show notes, like where to take a class from you to get the book at least. And just to learn about this layer. I still, I, I might stand by this walking the interlineage line. I mean, there's something more um, fluid that you're doing than that. So it's something else, but you really have created this, um, I think, essential modern well, if you can figure out what to call it, I, you know, people all the time ask me like, what feature you describe your, and like, I really don't yeah. have language. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if, if I was to summarize it in the most simplest heart centered way that I could is I'm just meeting people in friendship and sharing how, how can we, um, how can we all be here together without resorting to our armor and, and closing back up our shells. And it really comes down to the way we are with each other more than any particular lineage or any particular technique or, or any important person. It's how are we showing up and how are we using this time together to be present with each other? Well, Jillian, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to write the show notes and can't wait to release this. Well, thank episode. you. I hope I'm sorry. We, I seem to sort of like circle all around the block. So thank you for the expansive conversation. What I just really wanted to say is I wanted to thank you. I've been thinking a lot about, we do have a tremendous amount of masters that are still here on the planet with us. And many masters who have studied with some very potent energies and and lineages what would they they do ha- hold you know teachings that have been passed down and passed down and passed down and the fact that you are taking the time to capture and talk with and draw out this history at the moment especially at a time where there are so many different s- ways we can get teachings. And, um, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a big for or against anything. Like that's the blessing of my practice. Like things haven't, things are more this and that these days, whereas I used to have a lot more opinions. I have less opinions than I used to. Um, but I am of the opinion that capturing these lineage holders that you have been, uh, it is a real gift to to all of us and to the many yoga yoga students and enthusiasts who will long be able to access these recordings um, that might not otherwise have them all in one place. So thank you for doing your work and thank you for seeing the wisdom and having the interest and the curiosity of having these conversations. You are so welcome, and thank you so much for being willing to join in on it. I think I agree with you on all counts that um, long form needs to be protected. I almost said defended, and I changed yeah. it to protected and nurtured mm-hmm. and cared for in a way that will help people interested in this you know, existential inquiry that we take on, like Eddie Stern said, you know, yoga's not different things. It's one thing. It's a thing where we have a discipline, a recurring, you know, set of interactions with the um, efforts to control and quiet the mind. Yeah. And if there's enough nurturing and caring for, as you so beautifully just said, if there's enough people nurturing and caring for, then however people get through the door, the practice eventually can work on us to help us find the 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 more nurtured tended to fields you know in the early in the early days when people made their way through the gym door 
many of those people eventually made their way into the yoga studio. So we don't really know how it's going to look as, um, as much as it might be easy to sort of analyze the playing field right now. What is important is what are we also nurturing and tending for? So I thank you for that yeah, work. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome and thank you. And, I, and until next time, I hope so. Until next time. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can, the conversation, practice, and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on the week's well about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about, hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of the week's well featuring another new guest talking about how to be your best self. See you next time. Bye.